All right, welcome to another episode of Not Investment Advice. We've got the NIA boys here, Trung Fan, me, Master Flex himself. What do you call him, Jack? Shaper of public opinion. <laughs> Shipper of public opinion. Um, and we've also got Jack Butcher, founder of Visualized Value, and I'm Bilal Zaidi. Uh, make sure you wait until the end of this episode. We've got a special guest uh, in the second half of the show, John Wu. We're going to be talking all about OpenSea and the crazy stuff that was going on with Nate. Chastain, um, the dude who just got in a lot of trouble for insider trading. So we're going to talk the former, about yeah, the head of product for OpenSea exactly. and John just goes deep on the going in. Exactly. Um, but this week we've got a lot going on on the Apple side of things. We've got the Apple event. We're going to talk through some of the highlights there. Uh, buy now, pay later. And um, a little bit more that Trunk's going to opine on. Um, and then we're going to talk a little bit more in the second half around the leaked crypto draft bill as well. Uh, but just to kick it off, we've got meme of the week as always. Trunk, take it yes, away, here man. here it is. I, I, can't I think it was, uh, wait, was it you, Jack? That it's, Jack's been passing so many gems in our three-way chat. But uh, for the listeners, this is a tweet from Alex Medina, and uh, it reads, Joni Ive is crying right now. And it's, you know who else is crying? Is our own friend Rick Burton. Oh, yeah, I was going to say <laughs> Rick, yeah. So uh, it's a picture of the uh, a new product that came out of uh, the uh, the WW uh, developers conference for Apple, and it's uh, you can turn your iPhone into a webcam now, but it just looks really it looks so really ugly. ugly. What is like that thing? Is that Apple? like a what's yeah, the white like thing on there? It's like a latch, so you can put yeah. your uh, phone onto the back of your laptop. But uh, right. the worst it's like thing a holder. is the uh, pencil charger <laughs> in the iPad. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember when we asked Rick about it, and he's just like, hey, you can't get everything right. right? Yeah. Um, Upside down mouse charger. There's a lot of them. <laughs> they're stacking up. Well, I think the uh, the important thing about this and why that that uh, that meme actually hit was you guys you guys were sharing so many WWDC, uh, uh, that's the Apple Developer Conference tweets. It's like the entire day was just people saying like, oh, every sentence that comes out of an Apple employee's mouth is they just destroyed another startup, right? That was like the running theme. Yeah, you guys yeah. remember that? So obviously, uh, apparently there's a, a startup called Camo that provides uh, cameras for laptops and uh, they might be in trouble <laughs> with uh, this new product from uh, Apple. There's but, also uh, a bunch of these apps that you install on your phone to turn that into uh, oh, right. a, a webcam already. It might be Camo, might be one of them. I'm not sure if they've got hardware too. But just think of all the different like webcam companies that have come out since the since the pandemic especially like this is quite a big i mean oh. i think it looks ugly as hell but i'm sure plenty of people use it of if course. they've already got both i think i think there's like a bit a very interesting philosophical discussion around like everybody building on that platform is doing r d for apple like yeah if if you're basically building like a commodity of sorts or like a single feature that has no like cultural weight behind it like i don't think that's the same argument for people like build games and stuff like that even though they are getting raked by the app store like the you still have to rely on them to keep making games but if like hey we came up with this cool way to use your phone and we're betting like our next 10 years on this apple like oh yeah we're having that thanks it's kind of like amazon <laughs> jack like where right. you create a product and you you get on the top of amazon and you become the best seller and all of a sudden amazon basics, basics. comes around and jacks your socks oh, or whatever nice else you've got. Oh, nice camera stick you got there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a seven ninety nine instead of eight ninety nine. Nice supplier you've got there. Nice manufacturing <laughs> yeah. relationship yeah. you've got there. 
that's right, so, yeah. Let me walk through some of the items that you guys probably saw. So anything else that I missed, you guys mentioned it. Feel free. Um, uh, so I messaged. So basically, what Apple's trying to do with this developer conference is, well, they want to get their developers excited, right? That's one part of it. The other part is they're showing the consumers, hey, listen, you're never gonna have to leave the Apple ecosystem because we're just throwing you every freaking like feature you need. So iMessage, you can now unsend and edit text messages when that's live, which is cool. For like 15 minutes. Oh, for 15 like. minutes, okay, yeah. 15 minutes. Well, that, that's you're good. You're gonna save you know, when, a lot of people later. When night. your missus go through your phone, <laughs> you can't like be changing those messages from six months ago, right? <laughs> uh, this one was big, a uh, passwordless login. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw that. So basically they're, they're, they're introducing a way it's called passkey and uh, they're trying to get rid of passwords. I don't Is that know like face ID linked thing or something. Yes. It creates a new digital key by using touch ID and face ID. Exactly. Yeah. Cause it's so, kind of one thing that they ship- to using a password manager or the UB key or whatever. Yeah. Those sort of things. One thing that they one. did, you know, yeah, you know, the, um, wasn't Rick, didn't Rick talk about that? Didn't they buy one password or something or one of those? Oh, right, right. You mentioned something that, uh, or, or a company did something within the Safari browser, right? And they, uh, he said manager. like, they'll buy them and they won't let you fail. Like obviously the distribution they have, but maybe it's a build on top of that. I was going to mention the feature they shipped a couple of years ago. It was like sign up with Apple. Have you guys done that? Instead oh, like, of uh, like uh, yeah. Facebook or Google email or whatever else. Yeah. And I it says hide email. Strong. Yeah, it hides your email, like, like makes that. a proxy email and stuff. It's like so. a Google or Facebook login, but on your phone. And then I like the hide your email thing is great because uh, yeah. that's I'm when you start spam. seeing when you, <laughs> when, who's been leaking your info. Yeah, you know what I mean? exactly. This one was uh, the last one I have. Uh, uh, and then you guys can add anything else. I'd love to hear if you found any more is the CarPlay one. So they're moving away from... Because CarPlay right now is pretty straightforward. Right? I don't use CarPlay, but it's basically... Uh, you know, the dashboard for the listeners, I showed what this CarPlay looks like. It's basically, you know how Tesla has just the one screen where you can run everything, but Apple is releasing a CarPlay where you can do the entire dashboard, uh, speedometers, maps, the whole nine. Uh, apparently, they, they, Mercedes uh, has something like this already. But anyway. I was just going to ask what um, manufacturers they have relationships oh, for. Oh, they have. With. They got a bunch. I think like, I saw Lexus, Jaguar, BMW. They, they got a lot. Mm. They, got the, they got the players. Obviously, this toys. is a setup for them to tell Jaguar in the future is like nice car company you have there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Nice little uh, animal you have there. Yeah. We'll <laughs> yeah <that>. Animal. <laughs> All right. So Drive let's get it. let's get to the big item, Got which it. was uh oh I don't even know if this is a big one, but I think in my timeline the, the BMPL one. Did you guys feel like that was like people? Like, yeah, oh. that was the one I it saw most like people f- talking about. But it feels like it has the furthest reaching consequences too. Right. Like in many different ways yeah so a firm got a firm bmpl company uh buy now pay later so buy now pay later for the listeners and viewers uh, it's always good to frame it is you can split up payments into installments so you purchase something like i got a peloton i can pay it over whatever peloton (laughs) 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 you know what let's show you know let's show let me show the listeners here can i do this without freaking taking everything apart yeah i'm not worth it but your boy Oh yeah, yeah, I can. Here, here your you boy on Trump the Peloton man. right now. Oh, <laughs> oh no, you disconnected. There we go. Oh. Okay, listeners. Oh, did I just? Okay, this your, is funny. I just, just your little profile pictures popped up now with you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? That's so funny. Trying to show the tone, people. 
This is what happens when you give Trung any like mechanical responsibility. <laughs> we're switching cameras. Okay, we're down to the back. bad camera quality now. Okay, this is the lower quality camera. That Mac that looks great, mate. Well, if I had my iPhone hooked up, it would look amazing, right? There, you go. there we go. Bring okay, it back. Okay, so Apple is rolling out through uh, Apple Pay in its wallet a buy now, pay later option. So you can go purchase an item, and then Apple will give you the option to buy now, pay later. So to Jack's point, Affirm, which is a buy now, pay later uh, company, it got clapped. I didn't see how far its stock went down. I'm assuming 5 to 10%. Uh, Klarna, which is a private company in, the, uh, in Europe, uh, is it, also like making groans, but they're private. And then Square, which bought Afterpay at like the height of the 2021 stock insanity is probably like, ooh, this isn't great. But uh, what, what I want to say about it is this. So Alex Rampel, a partner at Andreessen Horowitz, and I shared this uh, thread with you guys, he makes a very interesting argument, a strong argument. He obviously knows his space much better than myself. Uh, he's a fintech investor. He's like, actually, people are misunderstanding what BNPL is and why it might not necessarily be that Apple just wiped out all these BNPL companies. So like, I mean, could you guys walk through your mental model of why you're like, oh, this is really bad for BNPLs? My model is, is really like capturing way more transactions. Like it's less okay. about the business model of the, the buy now, pay later or the flow of money because I don't really understand that to the degree I would need to to comment intelligently on it. But mine is like a, a coffee. Like yeah. You buy a coffee with Apple Pay. You put you buy petrol with Apple Pay. You do all of this like it brings it to merchants that would never have took that risk before, or would like are just like the integration of Apple Pay is so much simpler than starting a relationship with a buy now pay later company, right? Yes. Uh, that to me is is why this thing is is going to be ridiculously huge. Well, Jack, just to your point, you would normally describe it as distribution. It's not, is that 100%. kind of what you're saying? Like, we, I already have Apple Pay on my phone. We go to the coffee shop, use it 100 times. Now there's going to be this thing that's already integrated and a bunch of people with Apple devices already. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how I'd think about it as well. That's the only reason. That's kind of their advantage, obviously. So is that is that what you meant, Ron? No, that's exactly it. And I think your explanations nailed it, though. So, like, you're talking about the demand side, right? the customer acquisition side. So Alex's point, and, and, and we will tease this out a lot more in the next 10, 15 minutes, but his point is actually what makes the BNPL interesting is not so much on the customer side, it's on the merchant side. Because what's actually happening is that, take for example, Peloton, I'm not gonna try to show it again. <laughs> so I do have a Peloton here, but what's interesting about Peloton, so Peloton used to be about 30% of a firm's revenue. So, so wait, firm, wait, Jack, are you laughing because the way he says Peloton or what? Yeah, 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 yeah. Me wait, too. How, do you, how do you pronounce Peloton? <laughs> uh, There's I no E know. on the end. Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> wait, okay, okay. Peloton, I think okay. this is the Canadian coming out, man. Uh, We've got their the own. Okay. Anyway, go on, go on. So what Alex is trying to make, so let me actually tease this point out. I want to make sure you guys are understanding what I'm saying because it, if I'm not making the point right and need to make it right, so right now, if you're Peloton, you're not going to Apple and being like, hey, let's partner up on BNPL, right? It's a, it's a customer. It's a post-purchase option right now. So the, the, the splitting up the payment, the payment spitting is happening after 
you know, you've already decided to purchase it. But what BNPL enables is this. It's acquisition for the merchant. The merchant gets to basically do the equivalent of a sale on their product by going to their different channels and being like, listen, I'm going to let you BNPL me. You acquire the customer for me. But what I'll do is I'll give a discount on the product, essentially, right? So they're not doing that with Apple right now. You see what I'm saying? It's like everything that Apple empowers happens after the customers already decide to make the purchase. Whereas BNPL, the power is that- It's a marketing Apple, function. Yes, exactly. It's a marketing function. And that's why um, that's been kind of their value prop. They are working really for the merchants. The benefit is to the merchant uh, in the sense of the merchant is willing to give up some basis points, some margin to get those customers, right? But right now, Apple- Maybe they will. They probably will. But the agreement right now is a post-purchase installment payment. So you've already decided. But BNPLs are working with merchants around the world, different industries to be like, hey, listen, set it up and make it attractive for the customer to bring it in. But what I think is that Apple is so far reaching that this is changing everybody's model of how to pay for stuff. Right. You get what I mean? Like this is basically like, changing somebody's perception of their like cost structure. Like if, right. if, if like you have a mental model for a credit card and how that works, like, I think this is that big of a change in like mentality for how people purchase stuff. So I agree. Like, I think the distribution for like buy now, pay later originally was Pelotones etc. <laughs> but now I think it's like, it's almost like a, a concept that people understand Yeah, because of those pushes by like big brands and financing. And like, I think even in Europe, it's more popular. But when you're in London, did you see a lot of that? Uh, like a lot of those being advertised? Like what the buy now? Well, it reminds me of a rebrand of like, it's not exactly the same. So no one come after me, affirm, etc. But Remember payday loans like back in the day where yeah, yeah. like they were rebranded. They were credit, right? Like you're giving people money they don't have today. The payday loans had a terrible, terrible reputation that they had to create laws around it because people were getting absolutely screwed Destroyed, with the interest yeah. rates. And I remember all the, there were two, three big startups that like raised crazy money. And then I, I feel like I'm not putting them on the same level, but like, these guys are basically putting on a Shopify site right at the end, you're about to buy something, it's $700, right. and you're like, oh, I can't afford this. I'm just going to press this one button. The, the question, um, yeah, so to answer your question, I do see it quite a lot, but I, I've really only noticed them online. I don't really, I've never really thought about it in person too much. Obviously, like when you go to, in the UK, like Comet or, you know, the big like, um, Curry is what what are they call the equivalent of like a yeah, yeah, yeah Best Buy like that equivalent of a of a multi channel retailer. They normally have some form of this since forever as well. But now I think with a firm and the others, they've just kind of uh, like tacked it on, you know, versus it being their own version and like join the loyalty program, like all that sort of stuff that you used to have to do. Um, the, the one question I had for you guys, I don't know if we you mentioned this in your blurb there, Trung, and I just missed it, but. Do a firm and these others normally charge interest straight away? Is it they charge they charge fees and fees. there are there are potential that that you can back out what the interest rate is 
based on the fee, right? And and that's for the user, right? Like you're saying, the, the user is going to have to pay some sort of fees if they're, if they're late. late. Yeah. Because I saw Ben Evans, you know, we know him on Twitter. He said, Apple launching its own BMPL service for any Apple vendor that supports Apple Pay. No interest or fees. How does that work? And then people were oh, trying to explain. Jack sent it. So this yeah. is, let's walk. So I think there's two important things to tease out. Uh, Jack, you're completely right. I think uh, the point you're making is, I mean, what's stopping Apple from going to these merchants, right? And just being like, hey, guys, let's start doing these promotional things that you're doing with the firm, right? And, I, and the distribution is like half the people in the world. Right. Just send it to a fucking iPhone. Like, it, every, yeah, like yeah. I don't think you pull up the Michael Saylor video, right? It's like you either get it or you don't. Like you're really going to say <laughs> that like a company is going to compete with like a company with a million users that, perform, that provides a service is going to compete with Apple that has 4 billion users and has yeah. an ability to reach them by pushing one update one string of text, a push notification around the world will just flatten any kind of competition and they can give way more favorable terms because of their scale and their trust that they have. And yeah, I think most people, if you had to rank like brands that you trust, those those guys are pretty high up, close to the top of the list. Especially now with the privacy stuff, like they're literally just taking out ads, calling out that they're like showing the privacy stuff. So it's just... I feel like that trust for a normal consumer has gone up significantly. And it's premium too, because Google has as many users, if not more. But there's... It's uh, not premium. It's not premium on the mobile side. And two, it's really fragmented because you've got a thousand Android phones versus one iPhone or, you know, five iPhones or whatever out there. Um, Jack, could you just reference the Sailor video? Like, I, I don't know if we... Could, yeah, could yeah. you just elaborate on or either one of you and what that say? Yeah, video I posted was? it. I can I can talk through it if you want. I literally just posted this. Yeah, morning. go for yeah, it. Trung Trung rubbed it off me and I yeah. group chat. Yeah. And it's going <laughs> it's going absolutely viral right now. That's great. That's great. <laughs> I love someone asked uh, what our boy uh, who does the TikTok videos. He was like, "Where do you find this stuff?" And it was like, "Jack." Yeah. <laughs> if people know the right. amount of ghost written comments right. uh, from <laughs> from Jack in the thread, that's it. No, this but is it's, what, you, Go ahead, Jack. I was just going to say, uh, this was when I was like deep down the what is money 13 hour thing. And I was like, oh, let me see how long <laughs> this guy has been talking like this. And that was one of the like one of the videos that came up in that search. Because I think he said he references like when he's talking about networks. He's like, I think he talks about Apple. And I was like, oh, I wonder if he's said anything else about that. And this is Trung. You can explain the clip. All right. Teeing it up. Jack always puts the most fire content in our three way chats. And I always ask him, hey, can I steal this? And graciously, Jack always says yes. So this is a YouTube video that Jack found, as he mentioned, from his Michael Saylor deep dive and uh, many years ago. And this is Michael Saylor in 2012, no beard for our listeners. He's got no beard here. He's at a Motley Fool uh, presentation. He had just written a book called The Mobile Revolution. Here's a two minute and 18 second clip. It's incredible. It was like worth $3 billion 12 years ago, and then went to $600 billion. If you ask me, Apple Computer is going to $2,000 a share, right? I mean, I'd be very, very long in that company. Whoever's selling that stock must be a moron, right? I mean, this, this is a company that's going to actually have 4 billion devices out there. If they roll them over once every four years, they're going to sell a billion devices a year. And, and the thing that people uh, they don't get, right? You either get it or you don't get it. I sat with, uh, you know, one of the 10 richest guys in the world for dinner. 
three nights ago, five nights ago, and we had dinner for four hours, and he did half the talking, I did half the talking, and at one, and he's much more successful than I am. I understand that, by the way. As I said, it's like, it's, you don't, sometimes you got to do other things than just have opinions to make money, right? There's a lot of execution guy. involved in the rest. <laughs> but I have opinions. So, <laughs> so he said to me, you know, Apple computer, can these guys hold their prices, you know? Aren't, you know, aren't they going to follow the model of the PC industry? And aren't their prices going to taper down? Their 40% margins going to become 30 and 35 and 20? And it's another example of people just know enough to hurt themselves, right? If you're going to know a subject, you better know the subject because being like a you know, dilettante and knowing part of the subject is just enough to hurt yourself somehow. And I said, no, they, 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 gross margins don't have to tailor down. I mean, if you go to France, and this is the benefit of seeing enough, you go to France, you see Bernardo Arnault right. runs a company, LVMH. They're selling handbags for $4,000, $3,000, $2,500 each. This is a device that women view as fashion, and it's 10,000 years old. And for 10,000 years, no, the prices are not lower after 10,000 years. If you actually care about this thing, the truth of the matter is, is when the technology goes from being a utilitarian vocational brick that I put under my desk, no one gives a crap about that, to being a, a piece of clothing, right? A fashion statement, um, uh, extension of your personality, a piece of jewelry. And iPhones, iPads, they're, they're somewhere between clothing and jewelry and, and uh, accessory. At that point, they can hold that price point forever. So good. <laughs> I'll let you do the reaction, Trung. But the, uh, the other thing that comes to mind is the like iMessage lock-in. You know, this, like, yeah. this, the blue, the blue, blue bubble. Um, blue bubble That's versus like, green. I don't even know how to begin to like chart the effect of that over time, but the lock-in and the like the network status required to like, it's like the BBM thing. They just buggered up the execution of it, right? It's like this exclusive network of messaging. And then uh, he, I, I actually don't remember, like how long is the full clip? It's like seven minutes, right? Five minutes, five minutes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if this was in what is, what is money or that clip, but just talking about unstoppable networks where you get to a certain size. It's very similar to how he describes Bitcoin. It's like, this is inevitable at this point. There are so many people that are invested in this thing and the nearest competitor doesn't have, like you can say Android is a competitor to iPhone, but it's not really because the, it's not a network in the same way Apple is a network, right? The Android, like you take your iPhone yeah, out of your life. It's not as uniform. It's not as uniform. It is yeah, bigger you, you, on paper in terms of number of users, but not in terms of uniform, like people using it in the same way. And the value of the money. user. Yeah, yeah, the money yeah. they spend on the device. Yes, yeah, I mean, it is kind of an interesting, it's like an open, not necessarily open source, but more open source technology versus like a highly curated, like every decision gets labored over forever. Like I can't remember the last time I had an Android phone, but it is like, it feels almost like you have a, it's very similar to the, Mac and PC debates of old, right? It's like one just you get out of the box and you're like Nan can use it, and the other one is like there's so many levels of completely ridiculous customization, but which for some people is very yeah, appealing. Yeah, it's more breadth of experience versus like to me, iPhone is always eight or nine out of ten, and for me, like just I've used both for like I use Android for five, six, seven years originally, and then switched. Like there's still parts of 
a really high-end Android phone that are just so good. Like the camera often it can be better. Uh, the customizability, like you just said, um, like the speed, all that sort of stuff. And then there's and there's parts of the iPhone that just really piss you off, like when you've used the Android and like stuff they added many years later, like the nested um, notifications. Like there's so many things that Android did way before. But the truth is, like I still use an iPhone now because it's simple. And uh, yeah, like you said, you can give it to your nan or your mum or whoever, and like they're gonna know how to use it versus an average Android phone. Anyway, there's like less variance. And Android doesn't have like doesn't have like Metcalf's law baked into it in the same way, because like because Could you explain of the luxury- what that is to to someone. What what's yeah. that mean? So the idea of like every additional person to join the network increases the value of the network. It's x to the square, right? So like right. every additional person increases the network's value to square uh, uh, to the power of two. Yeah, and like blue blue messages is a very like superfluous example of that but that is essentially like uh that's a good way to think about it right it's like people buy an iphone so they can participate in blue message group chats let's say another example is like all the best game developers always put their apps out on iphone first because that's where i i don't know the difference in like what's spent in the app stores probably no, should it's more know on that. it's more on the yeah. iphone for sure so like, that way you're going to like fish where the fish are. Let's use a mongerism yeah. there. Like everybody's <laughs> going to build on, on no, iOS. No, that's a great, a lot of those, the green versus blue is a great example of that. Go on, Trunk. No, I was going to ask, did you use an Android because Google didn't let you use an iPhone? No, you're allowed to use it, but you, uh, we would get like when I first joined, you would get a free phone for Christmas. It was like okay. a Christmas gift. And then later I would like get, get it through work. But like originally I was like 21 in, in Ireland with, I'll take the freebie. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely take the freebie. And honestly, back then, genuinely, I prefer. I thought it was a better phone. Like okay. they had amazing, really good Android phones. If you even now, if you get like the top end Android phone, they're like very, very good. But like, especially moving to the states, that was the big change because in in the UK, like the iPhone in the states is is like the the dominant player for a certain group of people in um, Europe and most of the rest of the world. Basically, I'm trying to say this in a, uh, I don't know how to say this, what I've said one thing in my head, which I shouldn't say out loud. But <laughs> um, but like, yeah, in, in Europe, like if you earn a lot of money, you might have an Android versus an iPhone. Whereas in the US, generally, if you earn a lot of money, you have an iPhone. And it is much more highly tied to uh, status than I'd say in the rest of the world, even though it is across the board, a status symbol either way. But I think it's more it's got more of a grip in the US and that's why even stuff like WhatsApp, like I don't know if, if you noticed this, but any of your American friends, it's only in the last like five years, a lot of yeah, them yeah. started using it. For years when we moved, Jack, probably you had the same thing and Trung, you were living in the States back then too. Asia. I was living in Vietnam. In Asia. Huge so you, in Asia. you lived on WhatsApp, right? Like yeah. that's how and the main a lot of my friends who use iMessage were like, Why would you use WhatsApp? But I'm like, Well, because yeah, yeah. half the more than half the people I know aren't on iPhone, so I'm not gonna use that. And it just didn't clock like for, for a lot of them that's so still I, true for me like i still talk same. to all my friends in the uk on whatsapp like same. even though you could do uh it's, it's weird like that's yeah, that's I, a great network effect example exactly yeah so and i'm just we should go into this a little bit more though because i remember like I, I watched it quite closely seeing android strategy versus iphone and like i would read it every week like there was something called android weekly like an internal newsletter and 
I might have mentioned this on, on here before, but it went from 4% market share to 80% market share while I was there. And this is global iPhone uh, sales. And I think it's probably close to that now, maybe 75, I don't know. And that's the percentage of smartphones that use Android versus iPhone. But that was always the sticking point was, how do we get the premium segment? And they would continuously, they, they would you know create partnerships. They would build these stores in Soho where they take over a thing uh, for like a month and do all this crazy like brand partnership sort of stuff. But it was it's always really hard. And honestly, the, the green bubble versus blue bubble is a huge part of that. It sounds stupid, but it's a huge, people just won't switch for that reason. And, and another thing I think is like, the reason they were able to like cane it on market share is because other people are building the devices too. So it's like you're yeah. giving up something, like you're giving up an element of the consistency Control. and the user experience. Completely. So like, oh, we're going to ship software. It might look like shit on this thing that like this company that's only been building phones for two years is uh, working on versus the iPhone is like version 155 of the same like incredible genesis of a product idea. Completely. Like it basically was the most amazing piece of technology ever built at the time. And they just iterated on that amazing idea. And that's like, I think that, is overlooked as well where it's like yeah you can make the software amazing but apple like this is the costco vertical integration strategy at work as well right it's like we're not prepared to outsource that portion of the customer's experience like that to me you'll always be behind with that there's just but i think no Jack, i 100 agree i think it's like you mentioned the mac versus windows or pc back in the day I think in that case, I mean, Microsoft done completely fine, right? Like they're also one of the top, good. top five companies <laughs> in the world. But you would say, you know, again, like Google and with Android versus Apple, like Google's the simplest way to say how Google makes money is the more people that use the Internet, the more money Google makes because all of them are using Google search. Right. So they did a huge they, they made a, a huge they had a huge win by having Android where Microsoft didn't, Facebook didn't, Amazon didn't. They did, like you know any of those players could have been there. Microsoft tried and they had a, a really terrible run at it. So you could say depending on the metric of success like Google has one in market share terms, but maybe not. It just depends what you care about. So of course they would want the premium segment too, but in terms of like global market share, they have an ecosystem where they have all those people have access to Android Pay and all the other things that they build on that platform. They just have less control, like, you know, as the way uh, Apple does. Um, and that was always their strategy was like, let's open it up. Let's let people develop on it. And that's before Android. They did that with other stuff in the past as well. So it was always this philosophical thing. And I remember hearing stories of like Steve Jobs meeting Larry Page. Yeah. And like um, saying something like, like just have five products or like have one product and stuff like that. Whereas Google has hundreds of products. Even now, like you go on their website and look at the list of products, you don't even realize they've got like three types of music. Like it's stupid. It shouldn't be like that. Right? Well, dude, the like, chat is the famous one, right? They've had video chat, Hangout, Hangouts, 30 chat apps, Me. and they still haven't figured it out. Exactly. And I, I think that's a terrible state that it's in right now. But at the same time, that mentality to allow people to go and create alternatives within the company and see which one wins is what eventually created Google Chrome, Gmail and other things. But the flip side of that is you get this confusing thing of why have I got YouTube music 
and Android, like Google Play Music or whatever it was called. And then three, four years later now, they're all like winding it down. Same thing's going to happen with podcasts, right? They've got a podcast app. I'm pretty sure they're going to get rid of that and they'll have YouTube podcasts or something soon. So it's just like, and the reason for that is because as you get to a certain size, there's this philosophical thing that allows it to grow which is a good part. But then the negative side is you've got 17 different product managers with their own OKRs and career objectives and they've got to ship something by Q2 and then they all ship it and it's not speaking to each other. That's literally what happens. So no, I, I love think, this example yeah. though, dude. The example you said, you know when uh, they always do that chart? Uh, oh, Facebook will crush your startup. But the thing you said is the exact counter. You're not That's going why. up against yeah. Facebook. You're going up against one product manager and like, Two exactly. dudes, right? And it's why Spotify uh, oh, Wait, sorry. Or, dudes and gals. <laughs> yeah, completely. But no, but that's that's why, like you know, this is not rocket science. Like I'm breaking news here, but that's why startups exist, right? Like that's why a Slack can exist when there was already Hangouts and there was Skype before, and that's why Zoom can exist when there was Skype before, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So if you've got like very specific focus and you create something much better, like Spotify did, that's how you become the number one. Um, but you know, there's always going to be a time where Apple presses a button and they release Apple music, but how many of us do, do all of us use Spotify, right? I use Spotify. I do. Trunk. I use both. I got Tidal now as well. Killing it. Yeah. So, yeah. but, but that's the point. It's like, there's always going to be the ability for them to just press a button. And that's kind of the question, bringing it back to the original discussion on buy now, pay later. Like that is their advantage, but for the other players, Affirm, etc., they don't have that brand. Free. It's like, I don't care if I use Affirm or something yeah. else. Versus Spotify, I'm like, I've got hundreds of, you know, playlists and all this stuff in there. I'm not going to like just move that over. And there's this brand affinity to it. So I think they're in a much better place in this. I think the summary world. with you guys, after talking to you guys, I think this is where mentally I'm at. I think Alex Rampel is 100% correct that the product today, the Apple's offering, is not actually BMPL. It's split. It's post-payment splitting, right? And he actually brings up the point, Amex also offers this. They have a plan called Planet, and you can split payments on a purchase. You pay on, Amex. Based on what is he saying that? Based on the interface that it's shown? No, he's the... talking specifically about, uh, yeah, his, his take. Oh, no, sorry. To confirm to your end, he's not actually speaking uh, with knowledge of like, oh, this is exactly what Apple's offering. His whole larger thread was like, anytime a large financial or tech player says, we're going to offer this product, this is why you shouldn't be worried about that. So to your point, Jack, maybe that's exactly what Apple's going to do. And then a firm is really screwed. Uh, the larger point of the thread, uh, I think what's important of it is like, there is a big difference between post-payment installment splits because, for example, Amex already offers that. Um, you pay Amex a fee of like whatever, $10, $15 a month, depending on the purchase size, and they'll split the payment for you, right? So that's very different BNPL, which Jack, you identified, it's, it helps merchants acquire customers. It's a marketing and promotional tool because it's a way to go out there and uh, structure the product in such a way that right now the existing credit card systems cannot. The reason why is, we, like you said, we can spend a whole episode about BNPL and how the Visa networks work, but the key point is this. I'll pull up one image, and then after this image, I actually wanted to go back to the seller video because there's something that he said in there which is so amazing. But... um. This is the image that Alex Rample did for a YouTube video. But I think it's important for the listeners, I'll kind of explain it. But the existing work, so Visa sits uh, in the middle of four other players. 
So the four other players are this. It's the consumer, us, it's the merchant, and then the merchant and consumer each have a bank. So they have the acquiring bank, which works with the merchant, and the issuing bank, which works with the consumer. The point that Alex is making is that Visa actually never touches the merchant or the consumer. The banks intermediate those relationships. They just sit in the middle of everything. The reason that's important is because BLP, BMPL completely sidesteps the banks. It's a relationship between the merchant, the consumer, and the manufacturer. And what that means is that BMPL is actually a way to circumvent this trillion-dollar credit card network. And what makes it interesting and why it's a very important distinction to have is, is Apple building on the existing credit card rails or will it actually go out and do what BMPL does, which is bypass the entire thing, which would be a huge earthquake. And, and then they put do it. In Bitcoin on the balance sheet, right, yeah. boys? Yeah, yeah. Game over. Put it on yeah. chain, mate. All right, great, great summary, boys. I think um, for the sake of time, um, let me finish with a sailor super oh, go quickly. On, go, go for yeah. it. Let's do that. The uh, so I think the wrap then is this. We're, if we're thinking about YouTube th- uh, titles, this is uh, for the listeners a little bit of inside baseball. We're always thinking about what are we going to put on YouTube or like the title for the podcast on Spotify. But uh, I think we should talk about sailor calling Apple because, man, can we talk about how spot on he was? Uh, so Morgan Housel. Uh, uh, responded to the tweet that I stole from Jack of this video. And he said, I think the billionaire, the ten, one of the 10 richest people he's talked to was Warren Buffett. And, uh, and uh, I think he's right because obviously Buffett would be somebody that would talk about tech that way. He doesn't really understand tech, right? That was always the, the case. He's like, he never understood technology. But then four years after this video, he started investing in Apple, which we've talked about in the past, is the greatest tech investment ever in an absolute dollar term. He's turned like 36 billion into 150 billion. But what I found interesting about that was A, I think I love how Morgan called it out. He's like that. He probably talked to Buffett. And the other thing that, that, uh, that uh, Sailor said, I'd love to throw it to you guys because this seems like a very Jack visualized value thing. I love how he said if you're not an expert and you don't know everything about a topic, you know enough to hurt yourself. That's me. This is what I was listening that to. That should be like, our podcast time. Yeah, this guy was describing every awful investment I've ever made. I would read like one Economist article. I'd be, like, oh, I totally understand this now. I have, I have a lot. No, but this has happened. Probably it happened probably a dozen times during this insane like last two years we had. I'd read one article. I'd be like, I'm fully convinced of it. But obviously, what's so important about that lesson is, Sailor never turned around on Bitcoin and as you listen until he's just like understood it, right? Completely back and forth, 50,000 foot view, goats getting thrown off of mountains. This is what he understood. And uh, I found that a fascinating thing. So I want to throw that to you guys. What do you guys think when he says, don't, you know, you can be, you can know enough to hurt yourself. I think that's such a profoundly insightful statement. I agree. No, I, th- I mean, I think, He's talking about that from the perspective of running a software company too, which is like the insight that you get from that and the mental models that completely upend the way you think about the world would really change your investment thesis. I think like for me, it's exactly the same on a tiny scale is like the companies that I would think of as valuable four, five, six years ago are not the same ones I would think of as valuable now based on 
experiences that I've had, particularly on the internet, when I look at that Apple thesis now, like you could have shown me that video in 2012 and be like, yeah, that, yeah, loads of people talking about buying Apple. iPhones are cool, right? But now I look at it, I'm just like, what would it take to reverse the network effect of Apple? It's like, it's just not going to happen. Like, in my opinion, it's just like, there's nothing even remotely close to it. And they're running away with like every aspect of like consumerism and attaching it to that. But at the same time, a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have really, like you would think, you would think people maybe competing in a, in the same industry or building a similar product are like competing in the same game. But once you zoom out more and more and more, you start to see like a very, very different like game plan and like your own experience layered into that, I think gives you a much better level of conviction in the case of like sailor when you hear him talk about networks in general that to me is like that's not something you read in a book and that's not something that warren buffett is going to have experienced in his career in the same way sailor has right whereas like the things that he got obsessed with early in his investing career like he can read a balance sheet he understands like distribution bought railways all of these things but like the next application of like fundamentals like internet fundamentals are very different from like brick and mortar or like atomic fundamentals. And I yeah. think Sailor does a great job of explaining like digital fundamentals. And until you've been in that space long enough to like really internalize some of those phenomenons, um, it's easy to, it's easy to sort of brush it off or overlook it yeah. and be like, yeah, someone can come and compete with Apple and knock them out. It's like, when you get how difficult it is to build that stuff as well, I think that also gives you a, a different level of conviction. Yeah. There's something from the clip that, uh, the last thing I'll add on this was you're hundred percent right, Jack. He's like, so he mentions the fashion side, right? He mentions LVMH. He's like, listen, once you hit this status, it's game over. But the part that I clipped out from the YouTube that didn't include was he also added, he added a tech component. He's like, not only that, and you start, you're the intermediary level for all this digital communication infrastructure it's really game over so that was his insight he's like this has become a luxury product in a and it's a digital product which means it's game over and uh i man this clip is so good i'll be honest with you i probably watched this thing 30 times today i cannot believe how <laughs> clear yeah. he, he just it's just unbelievable how this uh, like uh, lucid and clear his argument is um all right boys thanks again for listening to this uh we've got an interview coming straight in a second for you guys with John Wu, so make sure you are here for that one, and we'll see you next week. All right, we've got a special guest here today. John Wu has joined us. He's head of growth at Aztec Network. John, welcome to the show, man. Hey, boys. Thanks for having me. Uh, for the listeners, you may, uh, you may know John from such viral Twitter threads as <laughs> Luna, uh, a stablecoin, and recently OpenSea, what does this insider trading slash front running uh, case with the DOJ mean. But uh, John, please tell us what your day-to-day -day job is other than wearing that amazing cowboy hat. Yeah, guys, I'm head of growth at Aztec Network. We're a privacy-first ZK rollup on Ethereum. What that means is we're the privacy layer for Web3. Okay, what does it actually mean? <laughs> uh, really, Ethereum is a public blockchain. Everything that you do, everyone can see. And we're going to get into that today. We're going to get into why that's such a problem. Um, okay. Aztec is a ironclad privacy solution that makes sure that uh, people can't trace every single one of your transactions. We can talk about all the 
uh, trade-offs there as well. Okay. So you nailed it. Perfect segue. Why don't you, let me, let me, let me tee up the open sea situation. You know, way more than me because as most of our listeners and viewers know, I read the one WSJ article and then go on to the podcast and pretend like I know what I'm talking about. Actually, Bloomberg, because I write with Bloomberg. So let's, and and Bloomberg Ben article. Thompson, that's the other one. Yeah. We just forgot to say Secrets out of the bag. <laughs> I was actually telling John, John was asking about uh, the Bloomberg column. I'm like, man, I'll, I'll tell you the difficulty is like Matt Levine writes for Bloomberg and trying to like compete against that dude is the most difficult. Not, not even compete. You just know that that guy is doing his thing and then you're trying to write in the same, like even remotely same lane. It's impossible. Having said that, uh, so OpenSea, uh, their head of product, is this correct? Head of product, Nate Chastain. Uh, so a lot of listeners will probably remember this, uh, but uh, a couple months back, he publicly resigned from OpenSea because he had been, quote unquote, front running NFT trades. He was buying NFTs before they were listed. And uh, obviously with OpenSea, if you list on the front page or whatever the equivalent of the front page is, uh, there will be a price bump likely. So he made, it sounds like 40K. Is that right, John? Yeah, about 20 ETH, yeah. 20 ETH, okay. And now he's facing 40 years in prison. Uh, this this comes about two to three months after the front running and was public made public, but the DOJ has come down on him quite hard. Off to you. Yeah, so what happened was this guy, Nate Chastain, um, he actually, a critical part of this, he was in charge of the listings. Okay. So he knew, and not only did he know have insider information of what was going to go up on the front page, but he was in control of what was going up on the front page. And so apparently what happened, and this was all discovered by like on-chain sleuths, like Anons who were just like hunting around the blockchain, right? The FBI weren't the first ones to discover this, like random Anon guys on Twitter uh, discovered it. Um, he purchased a bunch of the NFTs before he himself selected them for listing and then sold them after the profit. For profit. Now, uh, I think what's confusing about this DOJ case, and they just published the indictment the other day, is uh, they're they're indicting him for quote unquote insider trading. And I got a lot of questions as to, well, how is this insider trading? NFTs aren't a security, and that's really the core of this. Is like a, a giant expansion of prosecutorial power, right? Before, I, I think a lot of crypto people are are doing some navel gazing right now because they're like, oh damn, like if if all, if I can be prosecuted for insider trading of things that aren't securities, then I can't hide behind the fact that like n- none of crypto is regulated, none of this is security. So what is he getting charged with? It's two counts: one for wire fraud, which is a super super broad uh, umbrella term, and then the other uh, for money laundering. And the wire fraud um, was essentially for the insider trading component, and the money laundering is for trying to anonymize or hide the transactions using uh, a bunch of different. Uh, crypto wallets and addresses that uh, were non-KYC. So it's worth getting into each of these, right? Like, why is this even happening? Uh, disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer. I just have a lot of friends who are lawyers who hate their lives. And so You went to have... Harvard Business School, though, so that basically makes you a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still Close a narc that. one way or the other. I'm still a Sue <laughs> one way or the other. Um, but yeah, disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer, just also a hobbyist. So yeah, let's get into the, into the wire front. Well, I, look, I actually want to talk about the wire fraud because I read your thread and I and Matt Levine obviously wrote a killer thing about this too, but I, I yes. like your thread. Um, the wire fraud to me, so this is what came off of my mind. I'd love, I'd love for you to opine on this. You know, in every like crime caper movie, 
the bad guys never want to cross state lines, right? It's because yes. as soon as you cross state lines, it becomes federal. And if the federal government gets involved, it can do all this crazy stuff, right? Is this similar to how like the wire fraud is a situation where as soon as you start doing something that can be classified as wire fraud, that is, you know, all these new uh, uh, prosecutorial resources can come to your door. Pretty much. It's the difference between state authorities and the feds, right? And this is actually like an enumerated right in you know, that, that the federal government has, and that's in the Constitution. And the Constitution says that uh, the federal government has the right to regulate interstate commerce. And back in the day, before electronic communication was invented, that was mail, and that was mail fraud. And then that got extended to wire fraud. And now that ex- extended to essentially the internet is by definition interstate, right? Like the electrons move across state lines, to kind of like get the data. So pretty much everything you do on the internet now risks the feds getting involved. And so, yeah, to your exact point, you don't want to cross state lines, or in this case, you don't want to touch the internet. Okay. All right. So that uh, was that your point? Was that, did you have any more on the wire fraud side before you want to touch on the money laundering? Yeah. The thing about fraud is that there are two components, right? Wire, which we already talked about. It's just like anything that touches uh, interstate wire or the internet nowadays, which is essentially any digital crime. And then fraud. What is fraud? Fraud is essentially just a, a, a scheme in which you lie and you profit. And so nearly anything could be fraud, right? You know, like you you expense a dinner that uh, was actually just a night out with the boys to your company. That's definitely fraud, right? Like any anything where you lie and you get profit from uh, could be fraud. Um, you know, let's say I misrepresent who I am or misrepresent a product I'm selling. I want I sell you a computer, um, and I say it's model ABC, and instead it's model XYZ. That's also fraud. So fraud is extremely wide ranging. And as soon as it touches the internet or interstate wire, the feds get involved. I think this is really important because you gave three examples here of what people might not consider uh, comparable to quote unquote insider trading. But you kind of framed it in the same way where if you have this knowledge on a platform and then were to try to profit off of it, you could get busted. So I'll I'll throw the three out. You, You mentioned StubHub, Netflix, and NFL. Could you walk through those? Yeah, yeah. I I actually, I I mentioned another example too, which I really like. So, you know, in the Lego community, which uh, uh, because of just undiagnosed ADHD, I was interested in for like about a week. If you buy uh, certain uh, discontinued Lego sets, right? uh, After the discontinuation is announced, uh, the secondary value of these sets pops in value. And so if you know that they're going to be discontinued, you can buy it ahead of time and you get that pop. Now, if you're if you got that insider information confidentially because you work for Lego itself or you work for a distributor or you owe any duty of confidentiality to someone, it could be anyone. I could sign a contract with you that says I owe confidentiality to you and I violate that duty of confidentiality and I use that information to execute a scheme for profit and I defraud somebody. Specifically, in this case, I defraud you uh, by by uh, violating my duty of confidentiality. As long as all of that, all the bad stuff touches the Internet, the feds can get involved. Now, to what extent uh, do federal prosecutors spend their time coming down hard on these things? Right. Um, If any of you guys have day jobs, you could be uh, violating uh, your your duty to your company right now. You are stealing your company's time by just being on the Internet and not actually doing your job. Now, are you going to get a call from the FBI? Are you going to get clapped by 
you know, the Southern District of New York? Like, probably not, which is why this case is really interesting, right? Because it's a good reminder to everyone that like fraud is rampant and there's a lot of a lot of discretion when it comes to uh, federal prosecutors and the Department of Justice on what to come down on. And they clearly have this mandate to come down hard on all forms of insider trading, whether it's a security or not a security, it's digital or it's physical. And, uh, you know, Nate happens to be the target of, of that specific mandate. Is the mandate around insider trading, you think, or crypto specific? Like, let's send a message. It's unclear, but I, I would say, you know, it, you know, insider trading is actually a really interesting form of fraud whose, you know, the harm is debated a lot in, in, in law school circles, right? Like who gets hurt by insider trading? In some ways, like insider trading makes the market somewhat more efficient. I have knowledge of what's going to happen and I'm actually bringing the price of a certain asset closer to what it should be before information is getting released. Like in some ways, I'm actually making the market slightly more efficient. If you think about OpenSea's case also, Nate purchased the NFTs on OpenSea. So he actually handed OpenSea revenue. It was actually, if you think about it, probably good for OpenSea in some way that he did it. And so it's it's not, you know, the harms are really, really hard to suss out uh, in insider trading cases, um, but it's clearly something that the SEC and the DOJ really care about. So I also have an MBA, but not from Harvard. That was a very MBA answer. <laughs> Wait, who? Hold on a second here. I know this looks bad, but it's actually bringing the market closer <laughs> to where it belongs. So Don't insider trade, guys. Don't insider trade. If you squint your eyes, you can see the value being created here. Wait, uh, so before I think the money laundering side, uh, Bilal and Jack, did you have any questions? So, John, if you don't know, these two are much more active in the NFT space. Jack yeah. famously on our podcast sold a bunch of board apes to buy a house, which looked like the greatest financial maneuver <laughs> in the history of mankind. Right. So did you guys have questions for John? No, I, I mean, it was very uh, educational. I think when I first read about it, the, like my, my first question was like, how, how does, how is this, how does this leak from like employment contract or like the agreement that you have with the company you're employed at into, um, you know, into being a federally prosecutable crime. And you explained it perfectly, like their interpretation that this was a scheme to defraud people is enough regardless of any other, uh, like regardless of the categorization of the assets. So, and I think as we all have seen, there's been like a lot of questionable, behavior around the space in general. So if you're in a position like that to try and I, I read um, like going after somebody who's going to have a hard time defending themselves essentially because they're like one person, they don't have massive legal teams and the resources of, uh, you know, this sends a very strong message regardless of the outcome of the case. It feels like, and maybe has a lot of people reconsider they're, you know, what they're doing, how they're doing it, like, you know, maybe good for, um, I say maybe good, like, I think it is good for the space on a long time horizon to like, fraud is not a, uh, anything we want to invite into any system, regardless of how it's categorized on a piece of paper, right? It was a clear, um, it was a clear manipulative move. And obviously very provable with the chain data. Now, again, I, I think you can be a dick without, uh, you know, executing wire fraud without, you know, prosecutors coming 
uh, and knocking on your door. For instance, like, let's say I was a major influencer at a million followers. And I said, you know, uh, board apes are going to zero, sell all your board apes right now. I, I don't owe a duty to them whatsoever. And if I, as long as I didn't trade on confidential information, um, I didn't, I didn't defraud anyone. The, the key is with this case, there were a, a couple of components, all of which were necessary. There was a scheme to defraud lying. There was a profit. There was an attempt to conceal. Uh, and there was this duty of confidentiality. You kind of needed all those things. If you are just a guy who's trying to convince someone to make a bad decision, there's no law against that. And so a lot of people were coming into my comments being like, well, what about my favorite influencer who told me to sell, you know, at the bottom and then he bought my bags or he, he told me to buy at the top and then he dumped on me. Unfortunately, there's nothing that can be done on that. Right? Welcome to Twitter. It sounds yeah, like yeah, yeah. what you're saying there. God, I want to people make trying to dump, Yeah, bad beliefs on you for a long time, but now there's some financialization component to that, yeah. No, but John, you made clear that the victim here by the DOJ's framing is OpenSea, right? That's how they're framing it. Right. The, the duty that was breached was the duty of Nate Chastain to OpenSea to keep confidential information okay. confidential, not critically to maintain a fair market or uh, to, uh, uh, for instance, if, if I were a public director of a public company, I have a fiduciary duty to shareholders. And so if I trade against shareholders in insider information, that's a different breach of duty. I have a fiduciary duty to shareholders uh, for better or worse. Nate Chastain or, and, and nobody has a fiduciary to NFT holders because they are not regulated securities. And, and that's why, again, this is a little bit weird because you know, it's a different form of duty. There's a, they're prosecuting from a slightly different angle. And OpenSea wouldn't have had to have been involved in this process whatsoever, right? No, not at all, which is the other confusing thing. You might think you have a dispute with your employer. You could settle it civilly with your employer. And OpenSea did settle it in some degree, right? They fired Nate Chastain. They you know, uh, you know, know, wiped his equity. Whatever they did between the two of them, I, that's between the two of them, of course. You would think that would be done and settled at that point. But uh, that is actually not what the federal government has purview over. They actually have very broad-reaching powers when it comes to this specific combination of Frauding someone for profit across state lines, they're like, this is well within our purview. Could you talk through some of the other potential <clears throat> crypto-specific digital insider trading cases that come up? There's yeah, tokens, you, for example. You, you mentioned some of the other things, um, I, and it's worth citing the Web2 examples, too, because I think a lot of Web2 folks are looking at this and dunking on crypto bros being like, oh, these crypto bros, they're all insider trading. Like, I knew it was all a scam. I would not be surprised at all if there were a ton of Web2 insider traders and wire frauders, right? And it's some simple ways that you might abuse insider information. You know, listings is a really great analogy. If you work for a marketplace that is about to do a listing, right? Let's say I work for Airbnb and I know we're about to promote the state of, you know, we're, we're about to promote a bunch of ski villages in, you know, Park City, Utah. And uh, my uncle, uh, you know, owns a, a, a ski village in Park City, Utah. And I, I you know, I know that he's kind of getting tired of managing it. I'm like, hey, would you, would you mind selling that to me? You know, I'll, I'll buy it from you, you know, tomorrow, all cash. And then Airbnb starts featuring it. Airbnb start popping off in Park City. I make a ton of money. Did I, did I materially breach a duty of confidentiality to Airbnb? Um, I would argue, yes, you just committed fraud, right? If I am, um, you know, a StubHub employee and I know this is Dua Lipa, you know, I had to rep her for this analogy. Have you heard the Jock Harlow song? Oh my God, yes, it's good. Yes, 
Okay. <laughs> Wait, Jack Butcher, I got to okay. talk to you about it later, but I listened to some Jack Harlow because of you. Oh, he's good. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, you know, you know, StubHub is about to go put Dua on the front page. And, uh, you know, you've got some insider track to getting tickets for her London show. And you buy them in advance of the listing and you dump them right after. Is that fraud? Yeah. It smells. If it, it, it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, right? You know, there's tons of these examples. And so if you are a technology worker, if you're a product manager, if you're a copywriter, if you're anyone who has access to this confidential information, and there is a form of deception that can be tied to it and profit that can be gleaned. By the way, even if you make no money, even if you make no money, you can be prosecuted because it can be shown that you attempted to do so. You should be prosecuted if you aren't able to make money just out of <laughs> stupidity, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, even if you buy it and you sell it and it's you, you wash out, it's an even trade. If the feds can prove you attempted to do so, attempted to defraud someone, that can also be prosecuted. So I think they should just put a chill on everyone and just be like, Think really hard about some of the stuff that you're doing, some of the information that you're privy to, whether it's worth that extra buck. You know, I think it's just a, it's a good lesson. But, and by the way, this is exactly what the DOJ wants. They, they will love that 40-year headline. They love that we're having this conversation because you know what? It saves the FBI a bunch of time. The FBI and prosecutors work together, right? The FBI has to do a whole bunch of work. Honestly, these Anons, they handed the FBI this case on a silver platter. They're like, here's all the evidence. It's all in the public blockchain. The FBI was like, thank you so much. Thank you so much. They handed it to, the, to SDNY. SDNY is going to prosecute it. And we're talking about it. And it's going to put a chill on all this activity, right? Now, if, if you're thinking about doing stuff like this, you're going to think twice. And now the FBI doesn't have to come after you as hard, right? Because ho hopefully all these would-be criminals are like, man, I don't know. I listened to that, you know that that trunk podcast and john was on it and uh, i don't know about that I, I i think i might i might think twice we do have a lot of crypto folk here so you're doing, a, you're doing the industry a favor um john i just had one question so i think we would all agree that the intent of what he was doing was clearly you know he's he's front running and he had information he shouldn't be uh, executing on so i think to me just without knowing the law like it makes sense like the intent was was bad there and it's followed through regardless of it. I mean, you mentioned not making that much money. I mean, this was only $40,000 in the grand scheme of things in crypto world, especially not a lot of money, right? Like it, when people are making, you know, way more than that, doing all sorts of stuff. Regardless though, the, like you said, you might have made zero. In fact, you might have lost money with the damn Ethereum fees um, <laughs> by the time he was doing all this trading. Um, the, the question I had though was from your research, looking at the, the sentence or the potential sentence of 40 years in prison, how does that compare to kind of comparable crimes? I know there haven't been too many crimes like this, specifically with NFTs and OpenSea, of course, but um, does 40 years seem reasonable compared to what else you've seen out there? Yeah, I haven't actually stared super, super closely at sentencing guidelines for white collar crimes and insider trading, but it's 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 likely not going to be that long. Um, but but I... I, I you know, not to sidestep your question, but I, I do think you're bringing up something interesting, which I also got a lot of feedback from folks being like, I can't believe it was only $40,000. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. That's like kind of this uh, karmic credit type of, uh, you know, moral calculus where it's like, if you do this much good and then you do that much harm, you know, well, the net is like, you know, you're still out ahead. And I don't know him personally, but I've got a lot of mutual friends with Nate. And from everything I understand, he's a good guy. Unfortunately, that's not how the U.S. government works. 
that's not how federal prosecutors think about things. It's not credit karma, right? It's not, it's not, oh, you built up a bunch of goodwill. You were a great citizen. You paid all your taxes on time. And you just did this one small thing. We'll, we'll just subtract that from your karma balance. No, it's, it's if you do any crime at any time, you know, you're going to prison. And so I think it's worth really, really kind of hammering that home, both from an ethical and a legal perspective. Don't think that's how life works, that like I've done so much good and, oh, I could take a little bit of karma out of the bank this one time. Well, let me, you know, I bank so much goodwill, you know, I could take a little bit out. It's just not how life works. Unfortunately. Yeah, or, or marriages. Or marriages. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> Um, Your yeah, boy Trump trying to withdraw. He's been over withdrawing his uh, his balance. <laughs> <laughs> no, John, that's okay. So uh, thank you, Bilal, for that question. John, is there anything on the money laundering side that we missed? Yeah, the money laundering side is also kind of crazy, right? Is this, this idea of like, oh, you tried to use a bunch of anonymous crypto wallets to hide the transaction. Well, it's actually really good security hygiene to use multiple addresses. It's really good it's really the only way we can preserve privacy in the space is to use virgin addresses, use centralized exchanges as mixers, withdraw to different addresses. You know, everyone that I know has kind of like two wallets, right? You've got like your everyday social wallet, my johnwu.eth, and then I've got like an anon degen wallet where I do disgusting things and hopefully nobody ever finds out how much money I lost. <laughs> but I was um, like nodding his head. It's like, yeah. yes. Right. I feel, and, I feel you there, man. And, and, if you, and if you kind of, uh, you know, exercise good security hygiene, no one should be able to find the link. And so there's, there's this, I, I think that's extra scary because now it feels like the feds maybe are saying something like, if you do this thing where you use anonymous wallets, and if you think about it, like pretty much every non-KYC wallet address is anonymous, right? Inherently. And just um, sorry, to, you mean like MetaMask or any, like a ledger if you're using cold storage, et cetera. If you, if you, any anyway, Ethereum you didn't have address, to put your you name and address. Any, let's say I spin up a Virgin 0x ABC address and I withdraw some, some, some uh, funds from Coinbase or whatever. I'm not going to, as long as I haven't committed a crime like tax evasion or you know hacking someone or whatever, the feds aren't going to come after me. But if I have, I get an extra money laundering charge thrown in for free. I think that also has really interesting implications, right? Which is, um, you know, it, it's it's not almost like if you think about it, like it's not like a primary deterrent, but it's like a secondary deterrent. It's like any crime you do here is going to be doubly bad because we get to just tack on a free money laundering charge. So I'm really interested in how this goes through the courts. I wouldn't be surprised if whichever way it goes or it goes up to the appellate courts or it goes all the way up to the Supreme Court. And we talk about, you know, is it correct for the federal government to be kind of mediating the relationship between uh, uh, an employer and employee and um whether this is prosecutorial overreach, like we're, we're just going to have to find out. It, we're, it, it does feel a little bit like new territory across a number of domains. So the outcome here is absolutely, it's just going to be so important for the space. It's like, it's going to be watershed potentially. Yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely it will help define digital asset insider trading as outside the domain of securities. It'll be like insider trading is insider trading. It doesn't matter whether it's a security or it's art or it's Legos or it's StubHub tickets or Airbnbs. It's, it's all insider trading. I love that you mentioned tax evasion because that's the one note I had here uh, talking about how the government always finds a way. Like famously, Al Capone didn't go down for his mobster like racketeering stuff. They got him for tax evasion. And you watch the movie, you, know, you would know that with what's his name, uh, Rob De Niro and uh, Kevin Costner. 
another another great flip. Pay your taxes, guys. Pay your taxes. <laughs> no, he's right, so, advice. Yeah, <laughs> that that's the only investment advice you'll get on it. Did you Trump, guys you, have? No, did you guys have any OPC questions? Go on. Um, I had one more question. Like in a, hypothetically, Nate builds OpenSea by himself and does this. Ooh. Is he... Because he's not defrauding himself? an employer, you're saying, right? You right. mean there's not an entity to defraud apart from... Yeah, wow. Yeah. John. Amazing hypothetical. One. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> hy- you should go to law school, Jack. You should go to law school. <laughs> <laughs> amazing hypothetical. Yeah, what happens if you remove the duty of confidentiality, right? That employer-employee agreement. Then, then does the DOJ kind of say, no, this is back to market fairness, that actually there is a duty to NFT holders that, because I can, I, can, I can make that story up too. I can make the story up that when you transact with OpenSea, OpenSea is basically saying, we have a duty to you to be fair, right? You are entering that marketplace with the understanding that you're standing on the same ground as everyone else. And if a listing happens to happen, it's going to happen kind of at random and nobody is more advantaged than anyone else. There, I could definitely tell that story the same way we tell that story about securities, but that's not the argument the DOJ has made. It'd be interesting to see them make that argument. And then that would be really, really incredible too, because if we have a duty to NFT holders, then maybe pump and dumpers, you know. Are in trouble. Yeah. I got two questions to close up if you guys aren't nothing else. No, go for it. All right. First question. Tell us about the hat. Go ahead. Because I saw you on the Unchained podcast. I'm like, yo, I like this move. Carving Dude, up your hat guy. Yeah, you, I got to take the hat territory. There's too many Asian <laughs> bros in crypto. You got to have a call sign. You know, I figured it might as well be the hat. It actually came from, I was in Austin, uh, uh, just like kind of doing the remote work thing. And I kind of ran out of clothes. And I just went down to South Congress and I'm like, I'm going to go full fucking cowboy. Let's do this. I'll just buy all the pieces. You wearing the boots, dude? What, you got yeah, the, the boots, the dunk the, 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 the freaking <laughs> denim shirt, the bolo tie. We're going to do it all. And like, I was like a toddler, man. I, I, I just didn't take that outfit off for like, you know, in the next like two weeks. That's what I'm giving you the hand clap. That's a, that's an amazing answer. And this leads us to our final question. So Bilal here and Jack probably don't know this because they don't creep John Wu as hard as, they, as I have in the past. John, you were interviewed by Elizabeth Holmes for the CFO job at Theranos after the Damn. WSJ article broke. Damn, Can you please tell us this story? Go. I'm happy to. So this is this is our HBS professors. We're like, hey, what are you? What Harvard are you Business doing? School. HBS. Harvard Business School. For the plebs that don't know. HBS For the plebs. Harvard. Okay. Uh, you know, what are you doing after graduation? What, what job are you going to have? I'm like, I'm not sure. They're like, you, you know, you got to talk to this, like, you know, visionary entrepreneur. And I'm like, oh, yeah, who, who is it? Elizabeth Holmes. I'm like, Theranos? That, that's a scam. It was a scam. That was 2017. 2016 was when uh, the John Kerry reporting had broke. So I was like, you know what? I got to just do this at minimum for the story. So I fly out there. There's nobody in the office. There's literally like five people in the office. Wait, the office and, was a million dollars a month. Is this correct? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And empty, you know, could have fit. God knows how many thousands of people in there. There's like five people in there, literally five people. And they're all dealing with lawsuits. So I, I, I walk in and I get kind of get a very standard like HR walkthrough. Like this guy pretends nothing happens. And I actually sit down with her brother. Christian Holmes and Christian Holmes is part of like, if you read some of the reporting, he's one of like the set of like Duke lax bros that they, they bring in. And, uh, and so, yeah, Christian Holmes is like total Duke lax bro. He's kind of like, 
interviewing me. I'm, 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 I'm confused. Like no one's addressing the elephant in the room. You know, he's talking about what my role will be, how we're going to work together. And I'm just like, I'm just very confused. Right. It's just like, it's literally deck chairs on the Titanic here. So he, he, he leaves and then Elizabeth comes in and she's exactly what you would expect of Elizabeth. And to her credit, she goes straight, just truly straight for the gut. She's just like, I've made a lot of mistakes as CEO of this company. I haven't done a good job. I'm doing better. I genuinely think we have a product here, despite all the major mistakes we've made. And I need you to know, I have no life. I don't do anything else. Theranos is my life. I don't have friends. I don't see my family. I was put on earth to do this one thing. And I'm in a difficult spot right now. And I don't know who to trust. And I need somebody to trust. I need someone to build this thing with me. And that person is you. How close? To, what was your reaction? Well, like, what do you say to that? Right? <laughs> like no one has ever, no one has ever, no one has ever put a stake in the ground that hard that they needed me. That she holds your hand. Was she holding your hand while this happened? I mean, she might as well have been right. It she sounds like well someone been. saying, I love you. And you saying, thanks with a straight <laughs> face. <laughs> appreciate it great reference um yeah i mean that i i was i was blown away right um and then of course my second thought was like oh this person's a total sociopath and then my third thought was like i i want this power <laughs> you know like I, I was getting her on the downslope i was getting her in 2017 fda's after her investors are after her secs after her you know this is her at like 60 percent power like imagine her at like full power Imagine her at the top of a $10 billion business. Every single credible person on planet Earth is telling you that like this business is going to the moon. It's totally game changing. Henry Kissinger's on the board for some fucking reason. Like I cannot imagine what she was capable of like at the top, you know, probably one of the most educational experiences of my life. You obviously said no within what, what time frame did you say no in? I'd say like 36 hours. I was like, I, okay. I, I want to sleep on it. You know, there's, there's some glory to running into a burning building and like coming out with the children or whatever the right analogy is. And, and I decided that the building was burning a little too hot for me. Okay. <laughs> Did you believe uh, at all that there was a turn there, that there was a product? Was there even a iota in your heart? that you? Believed? Yeah, there was a non-zero, the okay. amount of patents they had, they had, they had actually poached a, a, a senior like scientist from like Abbott, Abbott labs like the week I was interviewing. And, and so like, they were still rolling up that credibility. You know, my professors were telling me to go, by the way, I, I just want to be really clear to them. I don't hold anything against you. Um, I think it's, it was really hard not to find this woman extremely compelling and credible. And I felt that way when I was in the room, I was just like, damn, like, I don't think I want to join this company because of everything that's happened, but I kind of want to take my wallet out and give you every dollar I have inside of it. You know, hearing that founder story of just like, I burned the ships. I burned the ships 20 years ago. I, you know, like this is all I'm doing for the rest of my life. That is crazy. I, I totally understand why someone would believe in her to the end. And when this whole case was winding up, what were you just thinking while watching the, this kind of the denouement of everything? It was kind of tragic. It was kind of tragic. You know, if, if it's true that she believed in it all the way and she was fully delusional, like that's kind of tragic to, to kind of bring any for any human to get to that point to live in an alternate reality 
right? So you could kind of tell two stories about Elizabeth. One, she was a fraudster. Two, she was just like high on her own supply. She was so convinced, so deluded of her own story that she was like beyond reality. And in either case, it's sad, but I feel like especially sad if like she really, really believed it to the bitter end. And uh, yeah, I actually haven't followed it since then. I don't know. She's like going to prison or something. Um, Fair but enough. yeah, I think she went down for fraud too, right? If we're putting a bow in this conversation. Mm. Yeah. Well, I do you get the right questions? Now. You good on that? Oh, that was a great way to finish. Thanks, John. That was. Uh, well, actually, let's leave on. I a, didn't know about this. A little happier note is uh, John. <laughs> so this is obviously the greatest Harvard. <laughs> I love that. I so, love that meme. I love that meme. This meme's incredible, right? <laughs> so for the listeners, it's probably the greatest meme ever. There's two books. One is called What They Teach You at Harvard Business School. The other one is called What They Don't Teach You at Harvard Business School. And famously, somebody wrote these two books. <laughs> contain the sum <laughs> knowledge so of human, the sum total human knowledge. I mean, this is, John, we, can we have you back and just talk about Harvard Business School? Because I have so many. Dude, I'm, I'm writing a thread right now about Harvard Business School. That is an infinite content farm. Infinite. Okay. Uh, so many, so many good learnings from Harvard Business School. We should have you back for that one. I'd love to. Thanks, John. We appreciate you coming on the show, man. Yeah, that's right, Thanks, guys. Drop knowledge. Real Thank pleasure. You, John. You're the man, Thank buddy. You Have a great rest of your week. Later, guys. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining again for the show. And I hope you guys enjoyed that. And we'll see you on the next one. Cheers.